Again, let's start the, you ready, the machine? <clears throat> All right, good morning, everyone. This morning, we're continuing at a mighty pace through Colossians. And I think you're going to see, begin to see some acceleration in our study of the Word. And again, I don't apologize for the pace that we have been taking because what's been happening is laying a foundation for everything that Paul will say, for all the relational and ethical teachings that are coming after this, these set of verses here. All of those ethical and relational teachings are the result of and response to a correct doctrinal understanding of what God has done in Christ. So this morning we're going to hopefully take verses 9 to 12, and then next week verses 13 to 15, and then the week after that I think verses 23, I'm sorry, 15, 16 to 23. I think that's where we'll be going in the next three weeks. I do want to announce this uh, now, and I'll do it at the end of the class. We're going to not have School of the Word on December 28th, which is the Sunday after Christmas, and I think it's January 4th, the Sunday after New Year's. I think those are the two right dates. So we won't have School of the Word those Sunday mornings. The room will be available, available for prayer, but um, we're just going to take those two Sundays off. You ask why. Well, the basic reason is, is a lot of folks are going to be back and forth, busy, in town, out of town, or whatever. And rather than having the class diminish by a large number, and then people not being there to be catching up and maintaining their uh, walk with us, I just soon just back off, give in to the, what happens during this season. I'm not complaining about it. It's just a part of the whole family structure and the visitation thing. And then we'll pick it up on the second Sunday in January, okay? So if you remember those Sundays and kind of tell everybody, we'll hopefully announce it in Sunday morning. Father, thank you so much again. Always we thank you for your word. Father, this word says in Colossians, so that Christ may be preeminent, having the first place in everything in our life. And Father, we know that we say, yes, Jesus is preeminent. But Father, in order for Jesus to be preeminent, the word must be preeminent. He is the living word. So Father, we pray that there be no disconnect between what we say about the Lord Jesus and how we function as believers in Christ. Father, we pray that this word, this living word, this living person in our lives by the Spirit is really preeminent and becoming preeminent more and more every day. So Father, would you increase the activity of our getting into your word, reading and meditating and learning and sitting with you and memorizing and knowing and understanding, being adjusted by, being led by, encouraged, built up, protected by your word. Father, do that work this morning in a greater way as we study these verses in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's read the scripture before us this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily or in bodily form. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made, sorry, made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now why has Paul said this? Uh, I, I was debating whether to put this in last week's lesson or this week's and so I'll just do it the way it's basically broken down. Remember how the verse ended last week. Paul's major problem with the human tradition, with human teaching, with human wisdom, that wisdom which is not from God but from our fallen humanity, from our own sense of what is right and wrong and from our own understanding of what should be done and what not, should not be done and what is good and bad and how we should relate to one another. All of those issues are to be informing us from the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And so Paul's major issue with all of that is what? What does he say at the end of verse 8? These traditions, these ways, these religious regulations, this philosophy of man, which is empty deceit, the problem is none of it's according to Christ. None of it's according to Christ. And so this morning in this verse, we see him just reiterating what he's already said. Now he's telling us why is it not according to Christ? Why is that so significant? Because in Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells in this man, Jesus Christ. The fullness of God dwells in Christ, in this risen, ruling and returning man, this heavenly man, this man whom we today call Jesus Christ the Lord. And because the entire fullness of God dwells in him, that is in his person, in the humanity of Jesus, where else do we look for wisdom? We should look no place else. In him, is everything that we need. So Paul is reiterating as he's moving along. So in this clause, what Paul has done, he's just rephrased what he's already said. What did he say in 119? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's already said that. Remember in 2.3, two, uh, two, in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's just reiterating as he's beginning to move along and is going to deal with a specific religious regulation or practice that is coming into the church, being taught to the church as a necessity as part of their salvation and sanctification experience. So now, in a risen and exalted man, God himself, God himself has taken up permanent residence. Remember in John 1, 14, what does it say? What does John 1, 14 say? Anybody remember, Frank, what does it say? What? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in Christ, God has taken up 
his permanent dwelling in humanity. The Word became a human. He took on a human body. And so God has permanently taken his uh, uh, residence in us, his people, so that in this risen man is now and forever superior to, this risen man is superior to all other spiritual beings. He's superior to all other hierarchies, angelic hierarchies, principalities and powers. He's superior to all other mediators. In fact, there is no mediator between us and God except the man Jesus Christ. Paul tells Timothy that. Why? Because in him, in bodily form, dwells the fullness of God. Therefore, you see, Christ has no rivals in any area at any time and forever. Now, what does that say to us? That says to us that if we have any questions about life at all, any questions about ourselves, any questions about relationships, any questions about what I should or should not do, if there's any question at all, where do we find the answer for those questions? We find the answer within ourselves as the Holy Spirit who lives in us begins to communicate as we study His Word and as we know His Word the answers to these questions. So where do we look? We don't look outside ourselves as if to look into the world. We listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who communicates to us as we ask and seek His will, as we submit to that will, as we are being informed by His Word. We find every answer for life where? In ourselves, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, not in ourselves because of our flesh, but in ourselves as we are now vessels who are being filled with God's presence and with His will. Verse 10, And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Well, I kind of jumped ahead of myself, didn't I? Because we are in Christ, as He has been filled with the divine presence. We also have been filled in Him. And because of that, you see, we're complete in Him, and we need nothing more, and we need no one else. So listen, as we live life, and it comes up regularly, things happen, things break down. What do we begin to do? Where should I go for answers? Whom should I talk to? What should I do? And the normal human propensity is that if it's a, quote, easy fix, an easy fix, okay, we go to God. We talk to one another in Christ, understanding that we share the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit speaks through all of us. We go see a pastor or a counselor, a covenant group leader, an elder, and we get some leadership from those people that ministers to that easy need. But if the need is more difficult and more, if you would, problematic, and if it's deeper, then typically what do we do? Well, we need to go to some professionals. We need to go to those who at least educationally and scientifically, psychologically, have the better answers than the church has. This is human wisdom. 
does not mean that they out there cannot give us some revelation that God will use for us. But for the mending of anything and everything in our life, for the godly answer and the maturity of Christ in us, that only comes from God himself by the Spirit. Can God use others out there? Absolutely and certainly. But what we must do is to acknowledge and be aware of if someone in the world, not of Christ, is saying something to us, we need to discern, is this from God? And if it is, we go with it. If it isn't, if it's human wisdom, we reject it. And how do you know? What's the standard? The Word of God. You see, the church is now God's completed new creational community. We are those people whom God has now taken into himself and has created a community in us so that in the community of the church, we are now reflective of the community that exists in God. And this community is waiting the day of its absolute fullness in the return of Christ. And so how are we to live? We are to live within a context of understanding and trusting and knowing that Christ is sufficient. See, in the church today, today as we live, God's intention for Adam has been fully realized in Christ and has been included, and we have the church have been included, how? By adoption into this family of God. So Paul is telling us what God has done. Now he wants to get into something about how God has included us into Christ. And so let's look at verse 11. Now in him, remember, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now Paul begins to explain how did we come to get into Christ? How were we included? How did we become filled with the presence of God? How did this happen? They were what? Circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands or made without hands. Now, why does Paul use this analogy rather than the analogy that he uses in Romans 6.3? Remember in 6.3 he says what? You have been baptized into Christ. And now he's using an Old Testament analogy. He's using an Old Testament figure or type to explain what has happened in the New Covenant. Why is he doing this? Why has he, if you would, switched on us from what he would typically say is baptism, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptizo, which is a Greek word, means to be placed into. What is going on here? Well, you see, now what he's doing, he's beginning to deal with probably the principal issue of the false teaching in the church. And this issue of circumcision being required of church people to either get them into Christ or to maintain them in their salvation was an issue that he deals with in several other letters. If you trace it out, you'll see him referencing this in several other letters because this was a hot-button issue in the first century of the church because the church was being pro the gospel was saving Jews and Gentiles and the Jewish people were coming into the church having been taught certain religious regulations and rules and thinking, good night, I have been taught this all my life and now I'm saved. Well, these things still have to be done as a Christian. Now, how many of you have been saved out of religious traditions and we find it difficult 
to not bring in some of the regulations of these religious traditions into our relationship with God. And we find ourselves being, if you would, remembering, oh, I, I wonder, I need to do that, or I need to do that. Oh, we haven't done that. I wonder why we don't do this. And so that's what Paul is dealing with here. This particular religious regulation more than any one other one in that time is the issue that is pounding the church. Now, it's not an issue anymore. But as we speak about this issue, let's think of other issues that we may be thinking we have to adhere to. Maybe not to be saved, but at least to be matured. Or other issues that we might be wanting to make sure that others are adhering to in order for them to be matured and continue to the end. We have to be careful about that. I have to be careful, and everyone in here has to be careful. Why? Because we all carry about this fleshly activity of works. Every one of us, because we live in the flesh, are permeated with this issue of what must I, independent of Christ, I add to the work of Christ. Have you ever seen it in yourself? How many of us have thought, now come on, how many of us have thought we've done something real bad and then all of a sudden we realize some kind of way we need to do something to make up for that? Come on, am I the only one that ever thinks like this? Or you need something from God. There's a big deal coming up in your life. You have to make a decision, James. You need a blessing, brother. So this week I'm going to read two chapters of the Bible every day more in order to make sure God checks me off, okay? Right, Tam? I'm just going to read a little bit more or pray a little longer, you know, to see. Now, should I be reading the more of the Word? Perhaps. Should I be praying longer? Perhaps. You notice I didn't say yes. Perhaps. I don't know. Maybe the Lord has to tell you that. But we, we import this stuff into the body of Christ. We, we, I'm looking at Lester Coe here. He's a prime example. <laughs> Lester Coe was led by the Lord, he and a couple of other guys, to start a men's prayer every second Friday of the month, huh? That's correct. I got it right, the second Friday? Yes. Thanks for telling me that in my notes. And so the second Friday of the month. Now, don't raise your hands. How many of y'all are here? Basically regularly, at least 50, 60% of the time, 6.30, Friday morning, second Friday of the month. Don't raise your hand. How many of you are here? Oh, you don't love God. Amen. You're not maturing. <laughs> God is not going to answer your prayers. You're going to wither and die on the vine. Now, if Lester feels that way, he's wrong. Now, I feel that way about school of the word, and I'm right. <laughs> now, does Lester have a heart for this? Yes. Should Lester desire the men to be here? Yes. Does Lester, should he be concerned about why some of the men are not here who could be here and are just not here for frivolous reasons? Yes, he should be. But what we can't do and what we should not do is to elevate these activities of wisdom and activities of serving the Lord and pleasing the Lord according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in each one of us to a level of obligation and requirement. Do we see the difference here? Except for Sunday school now, I might add. 
<laughs> oh, boy. I tell regularly I have meetings with people, talk to them on the phone, even text them. And I often end this way. How many of you heard me say one most important comment is this? None of this counts for church on Sunday. Okay. So this is what was happening in the, Galatian, in the uh, uh, Colossian church, Galatian church also. There were some Jewish believers in the church who were teaching that circumcision, along with other Old Testament ceremonial rites and regulations, were still necessary for the church if the church is going to advance in Christ. The problem was there was a either ignorance but probably a misunderstanding of the purpose of those rites in the Old Covenant and then a misapplication. And interestingly, these people were using Scripture as their background. This is not something they read out of some Greek philosophy book and they brought in. But Steve, Gordon, Errol, they're re using Scripture. This is why we have to be careful. We can all wind up using Scripture for unscriptural purposes. Paul corrects this teaching how? By showing that the Old Testament rite of circumcision was a type of how God would save His people, was a figure, an analogy of what God would do. Therefore, he says, they are in Christ by a circumcision made without hands. But you see, what was happening was these folks were not understanding the wisdom of God in giving the types or the analogies. In doing so, Paul appeals to the same scriptures about circumcision that these other folks are using to say it is necessary to do it. Paul is showing with the same scriptures that it was a temporary, it was a sign, an old covenant sign, waiting its fulfillment in God's Messiah. These teachers were misunderstanding and misapplying God's purpose in the right. Do I think that they were consciously trying to overthrow the gospel? I don't think so. These people were zealous for Christ. But zealous, what Paul says, I was also zealous for the purposes of God, but according to what? Ignorance. I didn't know any better. And so we have believers in the church, and I'm sure all of us have done it. I know I have done it. Where we are zealous for the purposes of God, but we have to be careful that our zeal does not take on a form of law and requirement that our zeal does not get elevated to a place where it should not be. I have to be careful of that regularly. I have certain zeals in me, certain leanings in me, and I have to be guarded by others to say to me, you're going too far, or don't go too far. Now, some will say I go too far when I believe honestly I have it. But these, again, these are understandings of how we come to the Word and what we understand is God's will. So in doing this, again, he says this is a sign. What is happening is you're misunderstanding what God meant by inaugurating this activity. So let's see it. In Genesis 17, 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. 
And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a what? Sign of the covenant between you and me. And so this is the sign, this is the regulation, the right, the practice that went into the establishment of Israel. And it became part of the law, of the Torah, of the ceremonial activity, of the ceremonial law of the Jews. But you see, when we look at Jeremiah many years later, many years later, this is, remember, before Judah is destroyed under the Babylonians. Many years later, Jeremiah is moved upon in chapter 31 by the Lord to say, look, a new covenant's coming, a new covenant. And when he says new, what does Hebrew say? Hebrew says, when God says new, that necessitates the overthrowing or the undoing or the completion or the doing away of the old. So here's what he says in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Remember, a covenant of regulations and rights and types. It's not going to be that kind of a covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I'm going to fulfill in the coming of the Messiah every analogy, every type, every promise that I have made. All of these will come in be fulfilled in this one man and in him as he has fulfilled it all, then in his people I will establish the reality and the fulfillment and the purpose and the good of everything that I have typed, that I have been assigned, given as a sign, that I have promised. Everything then will be fulfilled in my new covenant people in this Messiah. How is he going to do this? He's going to do it by putting off the body of flesh. He's going to do it by spiritually cutting away the old heart and implanting a new heart in us. Implanting a new heart. One of the things I did not show you in the Genesis account, in the, uh, the um, what did it call? Didn't I just read Genesis 17? Let me make sure I did. Yeah, one of the things he says, it will be a sign that God will make uh, a covenant. The word in the Hebrew is to cut, to cut covenant. It is a word for cutting. And so when we think of circumcision, it is an activity of cutting. It has to do with God in a physical sense showing what he will do in a spiritual sense in the new covenant. Everything in the old covenant, you remember, was external and physical as a demonstration of what God would finally fulfill in us, in our new hearts, in a spiritual way. And this is what circumcision, this is what this particular rite had to do with. Paul understood this from Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Listen to what Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Remember, Deuteronomy is a part of the Mosaic law. He is re-giving the law. He is stating it twice, Deuteronomist, you know, the whole issue of twice or two law. He says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. 
Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so it is a type of God cutting away the penalty and the guilt or the offense of sin from us, removing it from us so that we may become the covenant people of God. Everyone in the Old Testament, every person who became a part of the covenant, every male who became a part of the covenant, had to go through this particular rite as a demonstration that God one day will include his people into Christ by cutting away the offense of the curse, the offense of sin, the penalty and the power of what sin has done in their lives so that they could become the new creational people of God. And as a result, the body of sin would have no more control. It would lose its ability because it was dominated and controlled by sin to have any more ability to tell and rule over us as believers. You see, before we were saved, before we were saved, we had a free will in this respect only. We were free to choose among sinful, self-centered, self-motivated, self-aggrandizing issues. Before we were saved, that's the issue of our freedom. We were free to choose among many issues of sin. And everything we did before we were saved had to do with something of and about and for me. And we were controlled by that in our bodies because our bodies were dominated by that under the slavery of sin. But when we were saved, Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that body of sin has been what? That has been broken. What does that mean? It's been nullified. What it means is that now we have been reconstituted in our souls by the Spirit so that now we are enlivened by the Spirit and in our fallen bodies lives the Holy Spirit who did not live in us before we were born again. And because he did not live in us before we were born again, nothing of the Spirit of God was occurring in us as to our decisions. We were being led by self. But now that we've been reconstituted as the people of God, what's happening? The control and the ability of the body's desire to sin is now coming up against the power of God's Spirit in me. And now for the first time, I don't have to obey the lusts of the flesh. I can say now for the first time, no. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can say for the first time, no to temptation, no to sin, no to Satan. And every time I do that, Satan will flee from me because his ability over me is immediately in a functional way broken because his authority over me judicially has been broken at the cross. So why do we sin anymore as believers? I'm not talking about inadvertent things that happen or omissions that we're unaware. I'm talking about purposefully we are tempted. We know this is wrong. We know this attitude, this feeling, this desire, this whatever. We know it's wrong. Why do we do it? Because we decide against God. 
Is there any sin that we are aware of when we're being tempted that we cannot as believers overcome with a no empowered by the Holy Spirit? Is there anything? Is there or not? Nothing. Then we must ask ourselves, why do we continue to sin? Because we allow ourselves to be led by the flesh rather than led by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 has a little bit about that to say that. So, you see, this circumcision, this spiritual cutting away has occurred so that we can be now free, free within the context of communing with God. Now we are free from the control of self and are free to be making God-motivated, God-inspired, God-led, God-empowered decisions. So now we are free within the context of God's will. Before we were not. There's a funny little verse in 2 Timothy 2.25, I think it is, where Paul says we were under bondage to do Satan's will. So we need to be careful about this issue of how much freedom we have before Christ and in Christ, and what does that freedom have to do with? So, to add anything to this, to bring back any of this right or regulation into the church is a damaging thing. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry. So, you, let me go back a little bit. So, this is the reason you see that to return to that circumcision right is to reject the new covenant through the cutting of Jesus on our behalf, to return to the old covenant which was done which could not be i'm sorry i'm reading my old covenant which none could keep what did we talk about the cutting of jesus where did this circumcision occur where was this sign fulfilled where was it remember at the night that jesus was betrayed he says this is the cup of the blood of the new covenant this is the cup blood of the new covenant now how is blood spilled through what cutting through cutting. When Jesus went to the cross, he was cut. He was cut. And in his being cut, in his paying the price, the full, final, and forever price for our sin, God has forever removed from us the reproach of sin. I did not say the presence and activity of sin. I said the reproach or the penalty or its authority over us. The presence of sin still remains in us and will ever do so until we get what? Our new bodies but we're no longer under sin's dominion. Do you believe that? You see, the only way you can be free from the dominion of sin in a practical way is to know that you are free from sin in a practical way. And to know it, then you have the ability to begin to exercise the power of your freedom in Christ. Jesus was cut. He was the one in whom the circumcision as a sign was fulfilled. Paul says this in Galatians 5, 5, 3. Listen to these words. This is a strong rebuke. I testify. Now remember, why is he doing this? Because Jews were in the church or coming into the church teaching that unless you undergo this particular rite, unless you adhere to this regulation, you cannot be saved 
or if they are already supposedly saved, then you cannot be maintained in Christ. The only way to do it is that you must add something of the works of your own hands to the work of God in order to be maintained. Listen to what Paul says about that. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged or obligated if you're going to accept a rule and regulation that says, in effect, Christ is not sufficient and his work is not complete and his ongoing work by the Holy Spirit needs help, we are obligated to keep the whole law. Now, the whole law is a big thing. It's not just trying to keep those ten words. It's doing a whole lot of ceremonies and festivals and all kind of other stuff because that's the whole law. Paul said, you got to keep the whole thing. And it's a big law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You are severed from Christ. Do you understand? Did you see the word he used, severed? It has to do with what? Cutting. You have been, if you would, coming into Christ or grafted in through the cutting of Jesus. But if you're looking for something else to complete this, something else to enhance Christ, something else to, to make it better, or whatever it is, Paul says, actually now the knife is going to work the other way around. You've been severed from Christ. You have fallen from what? Grace. Now, this is a strong polemic. You remember what the word polemic means? It's an attack against. Paul is beside himself. Remember verse 3? Oh, you foolish Galatians, who in the world has bewitched you? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? See, he's not saying this just because their walk is going to be affected, although this he would be upset about. This, for Paul, is a salvation issue. What I believe Paul is saying, and some would agree and some would disagree, but I believe Paul's passion speaks to this. Paul literally believes that this is an issue of non-perseverance, that you're not persevering in the gospel, but you're adding to the gospel in order to persevere. You're adding to the gospel in order to get to the end. And Paul, when he says this, and he says many things like this, Jesus says many things like that, if you are my disciples, then you will what? abide in me and my word will abide in you. Don't, isn't it interesting how we forget that? Then you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. You see, it's wrong to say you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, brother. That's not the truth, is it? Is a half-truth a truth? I mean, Bill's an attorney. Is it on the stand if someone says a half-truth, is that acceptable? Do you swear to say, tell the what? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Paul says if you add anything to Christ. You're severed from Christ. You're fallen from grace. Well, I thought that once you were born again, you could not fall from grace. You must persevere to the end. Well, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? You must persevere to the end. Well, does that mean that God, when he saves us, didn't finish the work and we, he wasn't strong enough? You must persevere to the end. Again, it is God's initiating and maintaining work in Christ by the power of his spirit through 
grace, you know, through faith in us. But then on our side, we must live by faith. For the just, remember Habakkuk 2.4, will live what? By faith. And it is not living by faith in the completed, finished, sufficient work of Christ to begin to add things to it. It is removing ourselves from faith and walking apart without faith. We had to be very careful in these issues. Any church that begins to say, this must be done in order to be saved or to be maintained in your salvation, whatever that work would be, other than saying, by faith, you receive it. Any work, that church is undoing the grace of God. Amen? It's undoing the grace of God. And Paul has very strong words about it. Hebrews talks about this. The last verse, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful work of God who raised him from the dead. So what does Paul do? He now summarizes the effect of them being spiritually circumcised. They have been buried to sin's control and raised to new life of freedom from sin's domination by the power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Freedom now for the first time. Freedom to obey God. Amen. Freedom. So what does it say? I have to do this, and I know you do too. Constantly be looking at and evaluating our understanding of the Word, our personal application of that understanding, and our giving those applications to others. If it's clearly within the context of God's revealed Word, being lived by faith, it's acceptable to God and pleasing. But it begins to become an incorporation of something of and about for me and what you should do and how you should add. We have to be very careful to analyze that and to back away from those things, even though they may be our pet projects as believers. And all of us have our pet projects as believers, right? All of us have them. Amen? So remember, December 28th, we won't have the class. January 4th, we won't have the class. And then we'll come back next week and do verses 13 to 15. Thank you.